Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Let's begin reading uh, the previous paragraph there, verse 18, so we can gather some of the context. I've been going through a study on the book of Philippians the last several weeks. Let's continue that this morning. So I'll read from verse 18b and through the end of chapter 1. This is God's holy word given under the inspiration of the Spirit without error, perfect to accomplish the purposes of God. He gives it to us for our good, for our spiritual nourishment. At the end of our reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. You may respond with thanks be to God for the flower fades and the grass withers, but God's word endures forever. Philippians 1. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. A great and rousing military speech before battle. Uh, whether we're talking in real life or on the stage or in cinema, probably will have at least three common components kind of weaved together into a a glorious, soul-stirring speech. The first will be an appeal to the homeland, the nation for which you are fighting. Think of that country that you love, that home that you love. Go and fight. The second will be the unity of the cause, belonging to something greater, uh, something greater than yourself, a cause that's bigger than you. That's the second theme. And the last will be a, a laying out of the opportunity for honor and glory. You know, cover yourselves in glory, bathe yourselves in glory, fight well, and you will be 
remember. Some of the greatest moments uh, on, in plays or in movies kind of happen with these sort of speeches with those three components. Perhaps no more famous than the, the sort of the pinnacle of the, the, the play Henry V, the St. Crispin's Day speech, where he's appealing to England and, and uh, showing them the glory that lies ahead should they fight well and the fact that they fight together. It's where actually we get the phrase band of brothers in this speech. He says, we in it, in other words, in the world, we shall be remembered, or if you have your Shakespeare going, we shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he that sheds his blood with me today shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed. They were not here. And hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. Homeland, honor and glory, a cause bigger than yourself. Paul perhaps is no military general, but he strikingly and surprisingly has these three things in this short little passage, verses 27 through 30. An appeal, a reminder of the home, the home of Christians. Their, in fact, their heavenly home. A reminder that they fight and struggle and contend together with a unity that goes beyond unity that's found in the nations of the world. And then he finally reminds them of the glory that lies ahead. But it's a a glory that goes beyond earthly glory. glory. It's the glory of God, the glory of God in Jesus Christ. In order to do all of these things, he reminds us that we are citizens, and in fact, citizen soldiers who stand, stand firm, who struggle and contend, and who suffer. Citizen soldiers who stand, struggle, and suffer. We looked then at uh, last week's passage leading up to verse 27. We saw that Paul has said to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's applied that to his own situation. What lies before him is either uh, dying a martyr's death or continuing to serve the church and suffer. That seems like two pretty bad options for most people, but Paul shows how this is a wonderful thing. For it is a wonderful thing to have before you the opportunity to serve your king in the life that he gives you. To live as Christ, in other words. And when God calls you up to your heavenly home to die, well, that is all gain. Thus Paul has reminded them of this. And then he says, so far as it depends upon you, here is how you are to live. Verse 27, he says, whatever happens, in other words, here's the important thing for you. Conduct yourselves in a manner manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, it's an imperative, a command. You live this way. Don't miss the force of that. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, commanding the Philippians and thus commanding us to live a certain way. Well, live what way? Live what way? According to the manner of the gospel of Christ. In other words, the gospel of Christ is the norm for Christian living. That ought to confront our minds with something We have to be reminded that the gospel is more than a transaction like something at a convenience store. It's not like walking up to the counter, gaining your salvation, and then never thinking about it again. It's not like perhaps the metaphor that works even better. It's not like buying a fire insurance policy and then it's always there where you need it in case anything bad happens. More than that. The gospel is an all-encompassing assault upon your life. 
It takes over everything. That doesn't mean that salvation is something that we earn, of course. Paul masterfully reminds us of that. He uh, reminds us of salvation by grace, and yet uh, the way in which it compels us to holy living. Let your manner of living be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He doesn't say something like, let your manner of living be worthy of obtaining salvation through the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of living be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He died for me, thus I will live for him. Quite simple. He died for me. Amazing love, how can it be? He died for me, thus I will live for him. In the translation, there's something that it's almost impossible to convey from Greek to English. And that's what that word in verse 27, conduct. Conduct yourselves. This has more force than simply act or live. This is a verb that comes from the Greek word for city, polis, where you get, you know, metropolis or even Politics. It's the verbal form of that. Live as citizens of a city. Live as citizens in a responsible or worthy way. How do, how do you do that? If someone were to say that sort of in our context, you live as responsible citizens of our country by engaging in civic affairs, by thinking about and having an eye turned for the com- towards the common good, working for the common good, uh, joining virtuous voluntary associations, respecting those in authority, respecting those who protect our communities and who serve us, voting, paying taxes. These are the kinds of things we do in order to live as responsible citizens. And some have suggested that what Paul means here is to live as Christians responsibly in the empire of Rome, live as responsible Roman citizens. And it's true that the idea of civic life in Rome was very central in Philippi. It was a a colony, and thus there were several people with Roman citizenship, maybe somewhere around half or so, were actually Roman citizens in this far-flung city to the east of Rome. A lot of retired soldiers who had paid their, uh, their dues and their career in the military would have lived in Philippi, and it would have had a distinctly Roman feel. So some scholars have said, oh, well, Paul's just, he's appealing to that. He's saying, Uh, Most of you are citizens of Rome. Live as good citizens of Rome. But Paul has a much deeper purpose in this letter, doesn't he? And he's been teaching us, impressing upon our minds, week after week with each passage, this deeper reality. Their ultimate allegiance. Where does our ultimate allegiance lie? Where does our ultimate citizenship lie? He says that in Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our ultimate purpose. That's where our passport ought to say we're going. That we are from and we are citizens of heaven. So in other words, Paul is saying live as citizens of heaven while you are on earth. Christians are to have an eye turned toward the common good, but their ultimate allegiance is pleasing their God above all. It makes you think of perhaps somewhere like Acts chapter 19, where in Ephesus the Christians come under fire. They're in trouble because they're not engaging in the local economy of buying idols. And Demetrius the silversmith and other tradesmen are saying, look, this is, this is hurting our business. You need to do something about these Christians. They're not going to the marketplace. They're not buying these idols that we are constructing. The Christians aren't going to acquiesce. They're not going to bend the knee because their desire is to please their God above all. It's a call to shape your life by the politics of God's kingdom. 
to behave all the time as citizens of heaven. Reminds you of the Lord's Prayer, doesn't it? Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There we should be reminded that the heavenly beings, the angels of God, perfectly and always completely obey God's will. There's no disobedience in heaven. When we pray that, we're saying, God, allow that heavenly reality to make its home in my heart. And even I pray and, and, and think of the day where blessedly sin will be no more. And in the new heavens and the new earth, all will perfectly obey you in perfect righteousness. We've been uh, trying to teach and impress upon the little ones in our house the importance of obedience. And so this week we started telling them again and again and again, trying to get it into their mind. Good obedience is right away, it's all the way, and it's with a happy heart. The same thing goes for God's people. We are to obey our God right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. To live in service to our Lord and our King. So he says, you're citizens of heaven. And then he gives examples or uh, expands upon this command to show us how you are to live as these citizens of God's kingdom. The first thing he says is, stand firm. Stand firm. He says, uh, it, it doesn't occur to us as an imperative in the text, but it carries on the, the, the imperative, conduct yourself. So this is another command that Paul gives to us. When I hear of you, I want to hear that you are standing firm, for that is what you must do. The imagery here is one of a soldier. No retreat, no surrender. A soldier who determinedly remains at his post, no matter how fierce the battle rages on. Paul says that we are to stand firm in one spirit. It's not capitalized in the New International Version. But it's quite likely here that Paul means standing firm in the Holy Spirit. And even if that's not explicitly what he says here, how is it that we stand firm in one spirit? Well, it's, an, it's something that we're enabled to do by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit. We stand firm in the Spirit of God. He calls his people to live on this earth with courage and tenacity and steadfastness. To live with courage. The Christian life is one of courage. We're called to be a courageous people. 1 Corinthians 16. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Remind ourselves of the need for courage in the church. And recent studies have been done over the past several decades. Why, is it, why does it seem like men are falling away from the church more often than women are? Well, perhaps one of the reasons is because we are not reminding ourselves of the need to be a courageous people and the need for the men of the church to lead out in our courage. Everyone's called to be courageous. Everyone's called to stand firm. But certainly it is given and asked of the men to lead the church in their courage and to be people of courage. Act like men, it says in 1 Corinthians 16, and be strong, stand firm in the faith. He says, do not be frightened in verse 28. The word there for getting frightened is it, it's used for horses that would get spooked in battle. You see that sometimes in the movies or if you hang around horses. A, a horse that is spooked can be a dangerous thing, right? It goes up on its hind leg, starts running around, it loses its focus. Don't cower in fear, Paul says. Don't retreat. Don't surrender. Stand firm. 
God gives us a firm place to stand first because of the eternal blessings that he promises to us. For those who oppose you, he says, this is a sign that they will be destroyed. To oppose the people of God on earth is an explicit sign that they are headed for destruction. We're not to forget that. We're always to live with this eternal mindset, this perspective on what is ultimate. It's a sign of their destruction, but that you will be saved and that by God asks you, he commands us to live with this eternal perspective, to keep that in mind. Stand firm by reminding yourself of eternity. Paul says later in this letter, let us hold true to what we have attained, he says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of Christ, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Never forget what it means to walk away from Christ. Never forget what it means to reject him. And when, when, when people reject him, never forget what that means. Paul says, remember eternity that's set before you. But then he says something else. How else to stand firm? How else ought, to, ought we to stand firm? Well, we hold true to what God has revealed to us. All that we need for faith and life and godliness is revealed to us in the word of God. We don't have to wait and, and, and think about what God is going to reveal to us next and think about what needs to be added unto Scripture. God has given it to us in a perfect word. And he says, hold firm, hold fast to what I have revealed to you there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. The instinct of those who find their heritage in the Reformation will recognize that standing firm is the same spirit that caused our forefathers to write down what they believe in Reformed confessions of faith and catechisms. When ministers, when officers of the church affix their name to these documents, when believers say that they believe that this is the system of doctrine found in the word of God, they are saying that this is the solid ground upon which they stand. They're saying that they will not move to the right or to the left. This is a thinking that goes against the conventional wisdom of the world. Those who have influence in the world constantly have a finger to the wind, don't they? Which way is the wind blowing? And how quickly can I show that I am flowing down that current and celebrating what now needs to be celebrated? The church's task is not to reimagine core truths of the gospel, not to redefine historic truths of scripture, but to stand firm, to be steadfast, steadfast, just like a soldier who refuses to leave his post. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. My beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Stand firm. Second thing he calls us to do is to struggle or to contend, contend for the faith of the gospel. This reminds us that the, the Christian life is contained in a struggle. It requires conscious effort. And this struggle is a selfless struggle. You struggle together as one man or with one soul or with one mind. The unity of the people of God. To be unified in that which God has revealed and declared to us. This is another strong verb. This verb for contend. 
It's more than working. The, the image is not two people kneeling down in a garden, uh, tending to what needs to be planted and working in the soil. It's not that kind of working arm in arm there. It's, it's like gladiators in the arena, fighting together while their lives are in danger, fighting together with the purpose that they might survive as they destroy that which would destroy them. So to be a Christian citizen is to engage in this struggle. The Christian life consists in a struggle. Struggle for the faith of the gospel. One thing I particularly love about our Reformed confessions is that they draw tight circles around the essentials of the gospel, upon that which God has clearly revealed in his word, and it leaves other things to the matter of the liberty of conscience. Struggle for the faith of the gospel. Struggle for the essentials of the gospel. gospel. Contend for that. And don't major on the minors. We should remind ourselves as we think of courage, tenacity, and steadfastness, uh, these virtues that perhaps exude a more masculine spirit, that we are to remember the manner in which we do things is very important as well. The manner in which we do things. 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. It's like what we read in Romans chapter 12 today. Our love must be genuine. 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Gentleness. I'm grateful that I have been given a life partner who teaches me about gentleness and reminds me of the importance there. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, the Apostle Paul says. Correct your opponents with gentleness. You think of the the image of the war horse that gets spooked in battle. And as I said, they go up on their hind legs and they they create all of this destruction. They're dangerous. A Christian who is not remaining steadfast and not remembering gentleness and a gentle spirit is dangerous to those within the church and without. The manner in which we do things is supremely important. We are to defend truth, to stand firm in the faith, to contend for the gospel, but to do it with the virtues of love, gentleness, respect, honor, and humility. The last thing that we're called to do is to suffer, to suffer. God's people are citizens of heaven. They are to stand firm upon that which God has revealed. Uh, They are to struggle and contend for the faith of the gospel and engage responsibly in that battle. And then finally, they are to suffer. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted Paul says, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Behind passages like this, where Paul says, it has been granted to you that you will suffer for the name of Christ, behind this is a call to count the cost. Count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus said, if you follow me, you must be ready to die. And you must engage in a life where you die to yourself each and every day. One uh, scholar says this about the Philippian context. It said, To be a Christian, you would have suffered for refusing to partake in public assemblies dedicated to civic and Roman gods, particularly those that honored Caesar as Lord. Economic marginalization from voluntary associations that worshipped pagan gods as patrons may also be in view. Christians would have suffered for refusing to partake in that which went against 
what God had commanded them. Christians would have suffered economic marginalization because they know that they can't plug into every stream of connections that would have made their life easier and made them more money. And just because we live in a society that has historically recognized the goodness of religious freedom, just because we live in a society that has emerged from the Judeo-Christian worldview, does not mean that there will be nothing that we lose in this life for following Christ. Count the cost. Jesus promises us persecution and suffering and hardship. And some of that, and hopefully a lot of that, ought to stem from our desire to live for and serve our Lord. Jesus called his apostles. He said, leave your boats and leave your nets. Leave it all to follow me. Is there some economic advantage that you know you must give up in order to follow Christ? Is there some sexual fulfillment that you know you must give up in order to follow Christ? Standing firm means you count the cost and remain steadfast upon the truth. Contending for the faith will not come easily. Count the cost. I have a close pastor friend of mine, pastors in our area, and he's, he has the opportunity in the next couple of weeks to go to Kuwait and to officiate a Christian wedding for the son of the only Reformed pastor in the entire country of Kuwait. There isn't a lot of violent persecution of Christians there, but if you are a Christian, that means you can't be uh, registered as a citizen. You profess the name of Christ, and you will not be a citizen of the country. That means that you won't, be, uh, you won't be able to avail yourselves of all the economic advantages of citizenship. And what a beautiful picture, uh, the, the fact that you count the cost to remember that your citizenship is in heaven even while your earthly citizenship is revoked. You live in a land and you are regarded without having a home. Count the costs. Follow Christ. You are citizens of heaven on earth. We're called to live that way, whether you live in a blessed land or whether you live in a land of great persecution. We should notice, too, that Paul says that suffering is a grace. It has been granted to you. The verb there is it has been graced to you. Not only that you believe, and then it almost heightens in its intensity. God has granted you grace to believe. We know that we we only believe because of the grace of God, because of his grace that calls us and draws us and drags us even to Jesus Christ. My chains fell off, my heart was free. That voice of God giving regeneration to my heart, that's all of his grace. Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. It's all of his grace to believe. And then Paul says, even more, the grace that he gives us is that you might suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. To remind you of Acts chapter 5, the apostle Peter and John are taken before the council. And after they are flogged and released, what do they do? They say they are rejoicing because they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor. For the name. We're to suffer in the shadow of the cross because in the shadow of the cross, small seems all sacrifice. We're called to suffer for his sake and to bring glory to Christ. And here's how that works we must see that all of our suffering, when done in the shadow of the cross, small seems all sacrifice because it is the suffering of the Son of God that gives us everlasting life and unshakable joy. In our Savior. If Christ suffering on the cross produces our salvation and our eternal life, 
then our suffering, our suffering on the way of the cross and on the path of obedience produces opportunities to bring glory to Christ. He died for me. I will live for him and for his glory. Amy Carmichael, a missionary to India, writes this, Seeing him who is invisible, O small shall seem all sacrifice and pain and loss, when God shall wipe the weeping eyes for suffering, give the victor's prize, the crown for cross. Small is all sacrifice in the shadow of the cross when we're given the opportunity to bring glory and honor to our Savior. And that's really what it comes down to, that Jesus Christ be praised in our lives. We began with uh, that speech from Henry V, And he places glory and honor before his soldiers. He's saying, you will be remembered. The world shall remember you. Cover yourselves in glory. Fight valiantly. The wonderful thing about the gospel is that it recognizes earthly glory. All these things will fade away. They will go away. And ultimately, they won't fulfill you. They won't fill what is lacking in your heart. They won't fill the needs that you have. The only thing that can do that is the glory of God. The greatest desire of human beings, whether they know it or not, is not that they would be remembered, but that they would be forgotten and yet included in the glory of the risen Lamb. To live for the glory of God. To live for the glory of Christ. That is the glory that fills our deepest longing and our deepest need. Paul says it's a grace that you suffer doesn't matter what, the, what particular circumstance you find yourself in, whether you live in a land of freedom or a land of persecution, opportunities all around to bear the name of Christ and to follow him, to leave your boats, to leave your nets, to remember all that he has said, to stand firm upon what he has revealed, to contend for the faith of the gospel and to suffer with Christ and for the glory of Christ. May we do so as we live in the shadow of the cross, trusting in him and seeking to glorify the Savior who gives us salvation freely by his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that Christ would be praised. Empower us by your grace to live in the shadow of the cross and on the path of obedience, even as we remember the perfect, the perfect sacrifice that was made by our Savior. May our living be in line with the manner of uh, the gospel. May we live lives that show the grace you have given to us. May Christ be praised always, and we pray in his name. Amen. We'll stand for our song of response, and then we'll sing our